Hello and welcome back. You're listening to the ACAP Coffee Break with Meg Murray, a podcast from the Association for Community Affiliated Plans. Thanks for listening. Today's episode features John Loveless, president of UPMC for You and a former chair of ACAP's board of directors. Here's Meg. John, welcome to the ACAP Coffee Break podcast. We're delighted to have you. Thanks. Exciting to be here. You were a longtime chairman of ACAP. I think you were chair for maybe definitely four years and maybe even a fifth year. But so you've been and you've been involved since with ACAP, not quite since the beginning, but for a very long time. And we have so appreciated your leadership in ACAP. That's been a great experience for me. It's maybe 2004 or something like that when we started, I think. Something like that. I think, yeah, you came to one of our, our meetings when we met in Brooklyn for the first time. So one of the questions we tend to start off with here, because it's so central to why you do what you do, um, is what led you to healthcare? Why, why this industry instead of another one? I went into behavioral health um, care in, I worked in a state hospital, a state psychiatric hospital in New York from 1970 to 73. And I spent the first half of my career really in public behavioral health services of various sorts and then got into including managed care of behavioral health services from the mid 90s to early 2003. And I got sort of asked to move into more global Medicaid, Medicaid and healthcare services. So it's really something I've always done. Um, first as a clinician, that's my first job, then as sort of a supervisor and then as administrator and then into just higher levels of administration basically. So it's, it's really all I've ever done. I'm not sure answer the question. It's, all I know. Well, we're glad you're part of our industry because you have made such a significant contribution to it um, on both sides of behavioral health and the acute care side. And, and I know that UPM is also in long-term care. So you, you've been involved in everything. Has most of your career been at UPMC once you left New York? Um, about half. Um, it was 10 years in New York um, after I finished graduate school. I came to Pittsburgh to work in public behavioral health. I did for another 16 years, um, and I've been in UPMC for, this is my 20, 26th year. Well, that actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask you about UPMC's Center for High Value Healthcare, because I think that probably ties into that. And what are some of the projects that are being worked on there or the ultimate goals of the center? We started the Center for High Value Healthcare. It's a health plan division. Probably 11 years ago, I think, we hired um, someone from RAND in Pittsburgh, who is a um, health services researcher, then we started with, I think, three people. We now have probably 40 people who work in the center. It's really the, the it's really their function is to be the nexus of um, health services research and um, laboratory kind of work in the, in the practical sense, not the clinical, not the technical sense, and trying to trying to build pathways from research to practice. So one of our advantages of being an integrated system, and we're pretty large is we can try things on our employees, our benefit designs on employees. We can try things on the Medicaid population. I mean, the, the Center for High Value Healthcare has the ability to attract funding. We have a lot of money from Bacori um, and other foundations to, to evaluate the impact of what we're doing. So it's, it's something you couldn't have done before, really. It's these people, the staff and leadership there are really very strong in this space of, of um, attracting money. But I think have maybe $45 million in research funding in the 10 years it's been going, um, which, and we a lot of publications, um, we have pages and pages of publications of things that we've done. And, and we have grants, other grants besides PCORI as well, kind of a couple of Robert Johnson things and a couple of initiatives. So it's really an opportunity to sort of evaluate the impact of what you do and make it better. 
And is there an example of a um, project that came out of that related to the Medicaid population that you'd like to tell us about? I, I think uh, one of the really interesting ones, or it's been a while since we did this actually, was a, we had Robert Wood Johnson money to fund the evaluation of a, of a redesign of how we do care management in complex Medicaid kids. So we took the top 10% of spenders in Medicaid um, and did a three-year project, which um, was valued with Robert Johnson money. And the outcome of which really was by embedding care, dedicated care coordinators in primary care practices, we were able to see significant reductions in mostly inpatient expenses, primarily because the care coordinators had time to talk with families and kids about what was happening, how to coordinate many specialists, how to, how to move that together. Part of the design was, it was meant to be a, a sort of profit sharing, gain sharing, probably a better term, gain sharing experiment with families. So families made choices that saved us money and were better for their kids, they profited from that. So if, for example, a kid needed to strengthen muscles, if they decided to go to a gym rather than go to PT, that might be more normalizing for the kid and better for the, you know, the acceptance. And it also probably is cheaper. So the, but most of the savings were in inpatient and mostly it's because the care coordinator is really focused on having families talk with the nephrologist and then the hepatologist and then the neurologist and then the cardiologist who oftentimes don't really talk to each other very much um, and help families to kind of prioritize how to make decisions. So that was a really successful venture. We, we, uh, it's been written up a couple of places. So uh, many of the things we, we also had another venture with the support housing program, which is, as you probably remember over the years is support housing for people who are homeless and have a lot of unplanned health care. And it's really been a remarkable success in over probably 10 years and helping people stabilize in six to 10 months. Um, and they, re, you know, resume primary care or build primary care relationships. We have a big, big increase in medicine and people start taking drugs. But that, of course, has a big decrease in health care costs. So the net savings, which you can put into more housing. Those went, and those, those results are also been published. I remember you talking about the housing one in, in particular. One of the things I was struck by was that um, there weren't rules about um, illicit drug use, um, that that was uh, novel at the time, so that you were making sure that people had, was basically housing first and health first, and then subsequently deal with the, the substance abuse issues. Yeah, or other things that people do. You know, there are other, other kinds of not so great behaviors that people engage in in terms of who they take home for the night and what they eat and what they smoke and what they ingest. And this really is, a, as you say, sort of a harm reduction model that is more engaged in people than you have to behave before we're going to help you. The other um, center that I know you are very proud of is the, um, the Center for Social Impact. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there. Yeah, that's, that's about an 18-month-old adventure that we started in December of 19. The, and it's really an attempt to, its, it's focus is to identify opportunities to invest healthcare money in social, social determinants of health kinds of issues. So they've, and coordinate, we, we, we're a large system. We have a lot of tax credit giving. We have a lot of charitable giving. We have a lot of initiative around social impacts. And it's really partly to coordinate those things together. So they're more impactful and then we do them separately and to, and to build some metrics around what's the impact of doing this over time. So the housing thing, for example, has really been able to grow as we move from initially was funded with shelter plus care money and it had slots, a number of a finite number of slots tied to it. We since evolved into a housing choice voucher based model it has really no goes from being an interesting project with a small scope to something which is really scalable anywhere. Um, 
being based on housing choice vouchers. We don't we don't have limits about how homeless you have to be and how poor you have to be. They just you just have to be poor enough to be eligible. It's really helped us kind of fo really focus our attention on this and, and build a, a series of initiatives that don't always they don't always have to work. You know, we learn about things that don't work as well as things that do work. So. Great. Well, we will spend some time later on um, lear learning about that center and um, how we can spread some of those learnings also throughout the other ACAP plans, which is a big purpose of, of ACAP itself. Um, so the other big thing that's going on, social determinants obviously is a very big issue for a lot of our plans, but the um, COVID and the vaccines, and we're in the middle of the, the burgeoning um, Delta variant as we speak. What is um, UPMC doing right now to get the vaccine hesitant to get vaccinated? Well, so far we've done about, we've done more than 600,000 vaccines. Um, we've just injected in people's arms, which is, you know, that's, that's the easy part. You know, the early people are, once you have vaccines, it's easier than the hesitant people. We've been doing a lot of, a lot of outreach calls. Um, we have vans and paramedics who go to people's houses and people are hesitant because of transportation issues or they're homebound or they're too far away, we can go to them. Um, there's a lot of work with our physicians um, in, the, in the provider side of UPMC around talking to people around the vaccine. It's, you know, it's, it's it seems like there are sort of two big subgroups of hesitant people. There are the politically hesitant people, and then there are the scientifically hesitant people, the people who don't aren't convinced that it's safe yet, as opposed to people who think it's a you know democratic conspiracy to take over the world. The and they're trying to deal with the scientifically hesitant people by not only physician education, but also physicians from minority communities, who, you know, the black physicians, Latino physicians who can speak um, more from their own experience as well as, and maybe relate better to the communities they're trying to reach. So like everywhere else, I think the minorities are underrepresented in vaccines, um, in vaccination rates, um, partly depending on where they live, partly depending on how you know, access is, and a lot, lot depending on hesitancy. So lots of campaigning around why it's safe to get them, very unlikely consequences of anything negative, and we're about sixty, about sixty percent vaccinated in our in our in our Medicaid population, which is you know pretty good overall. Not would like to be, but it's pretty good. I guess UPMC is unique in some ways because you also own the providers, so you do know who's getting vaccinated at the provider sites. Um, is the state also giving you um, information on who got vaccinated, if, especially yes. when they were doing the big FEMA sites? Yes, we get the state has a vaccination system that they have turned out to be more public. So we hear from the state, we, from CMS, um, tells us everybody in Medicare who gets vaccinated, including eventually, a little later, our LTSS members who are not in our Medicare plans. Um, the, we, don't, it's, we don't have much insight into how their Medi Medicare expenses go, but that we have had data from CMS around their vaccination rates as well. So we're, we're pretty, not 100% current, but we're reasonably current on who's vaccinated and who isn't and who to outreach to. But it's been a pretty big lift, and one of the rural, more rural counties near here, we, we in, the, in the LTSS program, all three there are three LTSS plans in Pennsylvania. All three combined with the state to set up a series of clinics around the pop-up clinics around the state, in which we all had our members go to all clinics. So we, each was hosted one, one, one geography. Then everybody's members got to go, and. In one rural county here, it was a nice cooperative effort. You know, you don't, you don't have to do this work three times. You can do it once. But in one county here, we had called 15,000 people to get 300 people to come. So we have lots of calling out. We are called hundreds of thousands of people repeatedly with automated messages as well as direct you know, personal phone calls. And 
try to engage people in this as well. So I, it sounds like um, Pennsylvania is doing better in terms of coordinating with the plans. I know in some states, um, the, the um, claims data um, is, is, there's a lag in that. And then with these other um, FEMA sites, the plans were not always getting the information. So it made it really hard to know who um, is vaccinated. So I'm glad to hear that that's not such an issue in Pennsylvania. At ACAP, we've been advocating for the states to share that information. So I'm glad that it is happening in Pennsylvania. Those are a lot of um, big issues for, for you to have on your plate. What do you, I know that you are a big reader and we always talk about the books that we're reading. You shared a wonderful Icelandic series with me that I really love, um, Icelandic Noir. But what else are you reading these days to help you kind of deal with the stress of the job that you're, you're in? Stress, stress. No stress. <laughs> As my uh, colleague said, is it, you, you have trouble sleeping at night. I said, no, I don't have trouble sleeping at night. I sleep like a baby. I wake up every hour and cry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last thing I read that wasn't an Icelandic mystery, actually, is something, a fairly new book called um, No Heroes by a guy named Chris Offit, who is a journalism professor, I think, who was born in rural Kentucky, um, went to school there, went to college, left went back to rural Kentucky um, for a couple of years with his family from, I think, California, maybe. And it's it's really essentially an interesting story that the demographics and the sociology of who, who stayed and who left and who came, very people come back. Most people leave, it's like many places. There, there's not much opportunity. The business is gone. There's, there's not much in the way of education. There's not, there's family for sure, but there's not a lot of things to bring people back. And it's a really interesting story about how you went back, tried to acclimate, and then eventually left again. The, oh, really? oh, hmm. the, tr- Trouble Getting No Heroes is the name of it. It's really quite, it's an easy book, you know, short and um, easy to follow, but interesting to sociology. Yeah, interesting. Huh? I've not heard about that one. So, well, we appreciate your taking the time. And as I said, um, really appreciate the support that you personally and UPMC has given to me and to the other ACAP plans. We're very proud to have UPMC as one of our members. Well, it's been a great experience. We look forward to the next 50 years of ACAP. Thanks for listening. You can find John's book recommendations and others on our Goodreads bookshelf. You'll find the link in the description of this podcast. And when you do, give us a shout on Twitter using the hashtag ACAP Coffee Break. We'll put you in a drawing for a Starbucks gift card. So the next time you tune in, your coffee's on us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.